We've seen thus far in our study, the book of Revelation, that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, which is written to the seven churches or to seven churches in Asia. That is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And I I mention their names, even though they will come up again in our text today in verse 11, because it is important to remember that John is writing to real churches and not to describe seven periods of church history, as some have argued. He writes what has been revealed to him, what must soon take place, because as he says in verse 3, the time is near. And in this capacity, John testifies to all that he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I think one thing that caught our attention last week is in presenting sort of a Trinitarian blessing or a benediction, grace and peace from John does it in an order that we are unfamiliar with. He does it in the name of God the Father, Him who is and who was and who is to come, God the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before His throne, and then God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. As I said, we would expect a different order. We are used to Father, Son, and Spirit. But John gives us the order that we find in the structure, the construction of the tabernacle and the the temple. The holiest place, the Holy of Holies, is the place of God the Father. God the Holy Spirit, who is seen as the candlesticks, is the holy place. And God the Son is in the courtyard, the altar, where he is sacrificed as the Lamb of God. And it gives us a hint of things to come. That is, that John will be using the language and the imagery of the Old Testament. A further hint is given in his doxology, praise to Jesus, in verses 5 and 6, in which he uses the language of Exodus chapter 19, where God speaks to Israel before they receive the law, and this is what he says, Exodus 19, 6, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is different now, as John writes this, is it is what has happened for us is by his blood, by the blood of Jesus. For the Jews, they had just experienced the Passover. They had just experienced the Exodus, which were signs of things to come in Jesus Christ. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover lamb. It is by his blood that we have been freed from our sins. And why, why this deliverance? Why? You know, what is the purpose to serve his God and Father? Today we continue with this doxology and then we will get into John's first vision, his vision of the Son of Man. First of all, verses 7 and 8 here in Revelation chapter 1. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him or will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The two things were mentioned earlier in verses 5 and 6 at the beginning of this doxology. The death of Christ, he has freed us from our sins by his blood, and the authority of Christ at the end, to him be glory and power forever and ever. We find this in verse number 7 as well, as it spells out what must soon take place. And 
again, I think that that is critical to studying the book of Revelation, that the time frame is what must soon take place. What does this mean in verse number seven? Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. Does it refer to the second coming? No, it does not. It does not refer to the second coming. Let's break it down if we can. He is coming with the clouds. This language is very much found in the Old Testament. It is very much Old Testament language. It is one of the most familiar Old Testament symbols for God's judgment. Let me just read to you. Uh, three different passages from Isaiah 19. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols, the idols of Egypt trembles before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. From Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his, angers, his anger against his enemies the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. And then in, in Daniel chapter 7, which we will look at in a few minutes. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. We will look at this more in a bit. But even this, this is not simply Old Testament language. If you remember what Jesus said when he was on trial the last night of his life, he's before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked him, he said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus answers, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And those listening understood exactly what he was saying. They understood the implications. They say he is guilty of blasphemy, is worthy of death. He was claiming to be the son of man who would come to judge. He would come on the clouds of heaven. So the language is not that of the second coming. Christ will return one day. That's not what John sees. What John sees is what must soon take place and it is that Christ is coming soon. He is coming in judgment. And every eye shall, will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. I think there are two, there are two keys to understanding this particular part. First of all, every eye will see him. The see here does not refer to visual perception, but rather to experiencing and understanding. We find this in another of John's writings in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Paul uses the same language in Romans 15. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, and now he quotes from Isaiah 52, those who were not told about him will see. And those who have not heard will understand. And so it is not about visual perception, but rather of experiencing and understanding. And John says, listen, Christ is coming in judgment and people will understand that this is the judgment of God. 
I think the other key is the time frame, what must soon take place. That is, John views the Lord Jesus Christ as coming in judgment, and it will happen soon. This judgment will be experienced by those who pierced him, that is to say, the Gentiles, the Romans, they put him to death, as well as all the tribes of the land. This is actually the way this should be translated. Not quite sure why uh, the NIV people put all the peoples of the earth, the language, the, the word is tribes, all the tribes of the land. And when we say tribes in the Bible, I think the first thing that comes to mind, the 12 tribes of Israel. Even as Micah read to us today, uh, Paul, in giving his defense, speaks of the 12 tribes. So John points to both the Gentiles and the Jews experiencing and or understanding the coming of the Lord in judgment, which must soon take place. And it did. It happened with, well, at least five years within John's writing of this letter. We should also understand something, that the coming of Christ in judgment is not simply sort of to destroy civilization, to destroy people, but it is that we might understand that the Lord God is the eternal and unchangeable source and God of all history. We will see this in the very next verse. But before he gets to that, John says, so shall it be, amen. In other words, John's readers can rest assured, this is going to take place. Then we hear the words of Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As I think most of you know, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. In our alphabet, we would say, I am the A and the Z. But I think we should understand that this is not simply a clever way of pointing to Jesus as the beginning and the ending of all things. It is a reflection of what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. This is critical. This is why the early church was persecuted because they held that God is the first, he is the last, he is the Lord God Almighty. There are no other gods except false gods, pretender gods. What we find in this verse is John exalting the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is the Almighty, the one who has all power and who rules over everything. We will come back to this in verse number 17, where Jesus himself will say, I am the first and the last. But now we come to the beginning of the visions that John has. It begins in verse number 9. And here we see Christ as the eminent, the one among us, but Christ as the transcendent. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 9 through 16. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. 
dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its radiance. Let's begin in verse 9. And in this verse, I think John very wisely spells out what it means to be a Christian. He presents himself as your brother and companion in three things, in three things which are ours in Jesus. And what are these three things that are to mark the life of a Christian? First of all, there is suffering. Uh, The King James has the word tribulation. It's unfortunate that the NFV doesn't use it here um, because that would sort of unpack what we see later on in the book of Revelation when John deals with tribulation. John thinks that tribulation, or some people think that when John speaks of tribulation, he's speaking of a future event. No, John is saying it is a part of what it means to be a Christian. That tribulation or suffering may take different forms, but it is a part of what it means to be God's people. Jesus told his disciples the last night of his life, and John was there. In this world, you will have trouble. Here again, I prefer the King James. In the world, you shall have tribulation. But take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And John says, listen, guys, I'm your brother. I'm your companion in Jesus. And three things. First of all, tribulation. Secondly, in the kingdom. That is, we are subjects of the kingdom of God. In other words, we cannot gain or obtain salvation and say, thank you, we're not going to hell now, and and thank you for saving us. We have obligations. He is our king. He is our sovereign. John has just told us in the doxology that he has made us to be a kingdom. And we are, in fact, the kingdom of God. But we've also been told that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The problem arises when people do not recognize that authority. John will talk about that in this letter to the seven churches. The third thing that should mark a Christian is patient endurance or perseverance. This word appears seven times in the book of Revelation. So I think it is important. In our time, and actually for some time now, for the last hundred or two hundred years, the emphasis on the gospel has failed to emphasize personal responsibility. Perseverance is connected to the call to be the faithful witness on behalf of Jesus. Because the enemy attacks us ruthlessly, employing all sorts of things, but in John's time it was persecution, he tells God's people, I am a child of God as you are, and part of what it means to be your brother and companion in Jesus is that I must endure. I'm being persecuted, but I must endure. If you remember, the call of John's in this letter is twofold, to endure and to stay pure. John knows what he's writing about because he is on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If you think about it, John's language, I think, is interesting, if not fascinating. Because one could make the case that he is not saying, I'm on the Isle of Patmos because of my preaching. 
He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm on the Isle of Patmos because I was a witness or a test, you know, one who gave testimony about Jesus. It's not what he says. He is there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is, he suffers because God has spoken and because Jesus has given witness. Because Jesus is the faithful witness. Christ has spoken out against the false gods of this age and they have fought back. And how have they fought back? By putting John on the island of Patmos, a form of imprisonment. And so you could make the case that John is, is quite wise in the way he constructs this. He doesn't say, yes, it was because of my preaching that I am now being persecuted. No, he says, I'm on the Isle of Patmos because God has spoken, because Jesus has spoken, because of what they've said, I am here on this island. Have you ever had a situation where somebody upsets you, particularly when you're driving, and then you come home and you're still like this and you take it out on someone else? Well, the world is angry because of what God has said. The world is angry because of what Jesus has said. And they take it out on God's people. No doubt, John was a faithful witness. But that is not why he sees himself on the island. It's because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now he tells us, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit, I think we need to understand, is... The language of the prophets. It refers to the author receiving a revelation from God. It doesn't refer to a sort of a subjective frame of mind uh, that I was sort of feeling good. You know, it was a Sunday and I just was feeling the spirit. No, the language is very definite. John is going to receive a revelation and it took place on Sunday on the Lord's Day. The reference to the Lord's Day, I think, is fascinating because we're New Testament people. We think the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Resurrection Day, this is when Christ was raised from the dead. This is when we meet together. We're doing it today. It is Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. But in the Old Testament, we hear about the Day of the Lord, which is grammatically just another way of saying the same thing. But there in the Old Testament, the Day of the Lord is the day when God comes in judgment. And so John says, I received a revelation from God through the Spirit on the day of the Lord, on the Lord's day. I think they're both at play here. So he's being given a revelation. And I want you to see something. Before he sees anything, and we talked about this in the first sermon, this is a book of symbols, visual symbols. But before he sees anything, he hears. And this is a pattern found throughout this book. That before he sees something, he hears something. Oftentimes after he sees it, he hears again that an explanation is given. The Spirit brings John into a state of prophetic vision. And John's first sensation is not a sight, but a sound, one author writes. In the last chapter of this book, John will say, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard, when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship. John hears a voice which is like a trumpet. And again, I hope I don't belabor this word just here at the beginning. But when we read these things, our first thought shouldn't be what our experience is, but what does the scripture say? So when he says he hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet, you know, my first thought is, oh, he meant something that was loud. 
You know, it's like here, it's a loud voice. But no, in the Old Testament, the trumpet is very important in the life of God's people. For example, when God came down on Sinai to meet Moses, his descent was preceded by the sound of a trumpet. When God is said to enter his temple in Psalm 47, it is marked with the sound of a trumpet. When God's people are to gather together to worship, a trumpet calls them together to worship. In Numbers we read, Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moons, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. They will be a memorial for you before your God. That is, as you are worshiping God, there is to be the blowing of the ram's horn, the shofar, the trumpet. On the Day of Atonement, every 50 years, they were to blow on the ram's horn to say, this is the year of Jubilee. An expression that is very important in our history as Americans, proclaim liberty throughout the land, is done by the blowing of the horn. And so he hears a voice that is like the blowing of the horn, very much in the context of the Old Testament. The voice tells him what he is to do. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John hears and then he turns around to see. I turn to see the voice that was speaking to me. And what does John see? I think the order is important. The very first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands. And we will see at the end of the chapter, these represent the seven churches to whom he is writing. I just want you to, to understand that the first thing he sees is not the Son of Man. It is not Jesus Christ. It is the lampstands, the churches. Now, the lampstand, there was one in the holy place, and that's where the priest would go in. Uh, that's where the showbread was. It was where the altar of incense was. Here we have not one, but seven. And again, they represent the church. And before John sees who is speaking, he sees the context. There in the midst of the lampstands is one like the Son of Man. And we are told what he is wearing. He's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. What he looked like, a description is given. Um, and what he sounds like. His voice sounded like the, the sound, or his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. If you would now turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. I hope you can keep in the back of your minds what we've read in Revelation 1. But now I want you if you would, uh, to listen and to follow along as we read Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, first of all. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 
10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And then verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All, na- all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The language that John uses should remind people of what they've read in the book of Daniel. As we said in the first sermon here in Revelation, if you do not know the Old Testament, I, well, you will just go off track when you come to Revelation. Here he uses not only the language of Daniel, but a blending of various images that are found in the Old Testament. So, for example, we are told that the Son of Man is wearing a robe with a sash around his chest. This is what the high priest wore in the Old Testament. What John sees is Christ wearing something that looks like what the high priest would wear in the Old Testament. That makes sense because Christ is our high priest. He is the one who is in the holy place. He has come to make us priests. And then the sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, from the Old Testament, a passage from the servant section in Isaiah, Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. But even in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Thus, the way that Jesus reveals himself to John here in this vision is in the language of prophetic symbolism. It's not a literal description of his resurrected body. No, this is symbolic. The symbols are not what he looks like, but who he is, his identity, the searcher of the hearts of humans. He is full of consuming holiness, full of wisdom. He is the perfect high priest standing for his people before God. He is the perfect king defending them. And the effect of this is to present Christ in two ways, as the eminent son of God. And again, he is in the midst of the churches. He is with his people, but he is also the transcendent God who reflects the ancient of days. I've told my students at UCLA, I'm teaching a class, Religion and Society in Southeast Asia, that everybody needs two kinds of gods. We need a transcendent God and an eminent God. Transcendent one who sort of is the big picture, someone who sort of gives purpose and meaning to our lives. And then the eminent God. That sort of gets us through the day, which may be as insignificant as a cup of coffee. You know, it's just to help you cope, but it's something that helps us with the day-to-day things of life. In Christianity, we have a God who is both transcendent and eminent. He is with us, God with us, but he is also the God who created all things. He is the transcendent God. 
And as John begins, as the vision begins for him, he sees Christ as the twofold God, one who is transcendent like the Ancient of Days, and the language of the Ancient of Days is applied to him, but he's also in the midst of the churches. He has not left the churches. He hasn't gone off to heaven and left us alone. He is with us. And what is John's reaction? If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is, his vision of Christ, the, the radiance, the purity of the Son of Man is overwhelming to him. And when he sees him, he falls at his feet as though dead. From what we find in the rest of Scripture, this is not unusual. I think our problem is culturally that we have a very casual attitude, almost a cavalier attitude, toward the presence of God. I can remember seeing someone, a TV evangelist once, who was sort of walking back and forth on the platform, and, and then all of a sudden he stopped and he said, Yeah, Lord, I'll tell them. Yeah, I'll tell them. And I thought, well, that's, that's an interesting way of, of dealing with God. John has a vision of Christ, and it almost kills him. He falls on the ground as though dead. Let me just give you some examples from the Old Testament. When Manoah and his wife, who would be the parents of Samson, saw the Lord ascend into heaven in the flame of their offering, they fell with their faces to the ground. In First Chronicles we read, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he has a vision of the Lord in the temple, cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Ezekiel records at the end of Ezekiel chapter 1, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Daniel records one of his responses to a vision of the Lord. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. While he was saying this to me, I bowed my face to the ground and was speechless. You see, when someone comes and is confronted with the presence of God, the person of God, the reaction is not one of comfort and ease, but it is a sense of being overwhelmed. I think culturally we've lost sight of that. I think the church has lost sight of that. John, and remember, John is John the Beloved. He is from what we can tell in the Gospels, the one who was closest to Jesus. I mean, Peter is sort of the outspoken one, but John is described as the one who leans against Jesus during the Last Supper. This is someone who knows Jesus very well. This is someone who, if anyone could, could say, Hey, you know, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. But no, when he is confronted by Christ, he falls on the ground as though dead. And I think we could learn much from that. And then Jesus speaks to him. First of all, he's going to give him a commission. But first of all, 
Jesus must establish his credentials as one who has the authority to give him this commission. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hopefully we are aware of the fact that if someone commissions you, they must have the authority to do that. John is told to write this letter. Now he is told who is commissioning him. It is the one who is the first and the last, the living one. And what is the commission? Verse number 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. That is, John is to write about what he has seen, that is, the vision of Christ, what it signifies, and what is about to happen. And John will do that faithfully in this book. And then we're sort of given more insight into the way this book is going to work. In verse number 20, the mystery is explained. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the Lord willing, as we go along, we will see more of this beginning next Sunday. Let me just sort of bring this to a close here. Two things stand out in my mind about this passage. First of all, in verse number nine, John's identity as a Christian. Tribulation, dominion, or, and perseverance. I think we have trouble in our time with perseverance. We say that once a person is saved, they're always saved. And have somehow neglected to tell people you have a responsibility to endure, to persevere. But I think we're working on that. Then when it comes to the kingdom of God, I think different people do say, yes, we are the kingdom of God here on earth. It's that tribulation thing, I think, that creates some discomfort. Um, I don't mind the dominion thing and I don't mind the perseverance. It's that, that tribulation thing. But it is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And I think we should remember Paul's words to the Romans. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We may have to suffer. I don't think anybody wants to suffer, but it is the mark of a Christian. And the second thing is consider John's vision of Christ, the Almighty who comes in judgment, the eminent Son of God who is in the midst of his churches, the transcendent first and last. He is the one whom we worship today. He is the one that we are to serve. He is the one to whom we are to give our allegiance. And it was for this that the church in John's day was persecuted. And remember again that John is on the island of Patmos. I think it is because of his preaching, but that's not what he says. It isn't, yes, I was being very faithful and I was preaching the word of God left and right and and then people got upset and persecuted me and threw me on this island. No, he says, "I'm, I'm on this island because God has spoken. I'm on this island because Christ has spoken. The testimony of Christ, the faithful witness. 
and because of what they say, that God is the God of this world and Christ is the king. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Because of that, I've ended up on this island. So it isn't what we say. It is what God has said that people hate so much. It was because of that that John and his brothers were persecuted. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this passage, we have, in many ways, our own preconceived notions. We sort of interpret it as we want, and instead we should go to your word, as Paul says, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Thank you for this wonderful vision that is just beginning with John, as he sees our Lord Jesus Christ as both with us in the midst of the churches, as well as on the throne, the ancient of days. One who reflects the reality of the ancient of days, the Son of Man. I thank you for John's reaction, which is one of being overwhelmed, one of worship, not one of casual acquaintance, familiarity, but a real sense of reverence. And we're reminded of the phrase, the fear of the Lord. Far too often because of the time in which we live, I fear that we are too familiar with you. that we lack reverence and that in our praying oftentimes we stumble into your presence or rush in as though you must listen to us rather than a sense that you are the God of all creation. May we be those who not only hear your word but put it into practice in our lives. As we have seen, it is by the death of your Son that we have been freed from our sins, made to be a kingdom and priest. And today we remember his sacrifice, his body being broken, and his blood being shed for us. And we give thanks for this. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Paul wrote to the Corinthians, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.